0: morning. Well, we're excited to be here today. And before we get started on what we're going to talk about this morning, I just wanted to take some time uh, to thank everybody here, the whole church. We just couldn't be more blessed, Anna and I, just by everybody's actions. And when I tell people, like I tell my parents or I tell uh, other pastors that I'm friends with across the state or guys who've mentored me, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is what the church does. This is what they're doing for us. And they're bringing us these meals. And they're showing our groceries. They're just like, what? Really? Did they they met you? Right. And and I was like, yeah, I just I don't know. They're just really sanctified, I guess. And and uh I mean, but people just can't believe when I tell others close to me, close to my family about Tomball Bible Church, they just they just don't think it's really like, wow, we need to do that as a church. Like we should we should be doing that. I'm going to call my oh We're going to do that. So it was just I mean, it's just been beyond um grateful. We've been beyond grateful. And excited about that. And I was talking to Anna and a friend the other day, and I was telling them all the things that you guys have been doing for us. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think if, if Tomball Bible was a cult, it'd be hard to turn it down still. <laughs> I mean, I love like Orthodox theology and I'm very precise, but uh, I don't know, like they're, they're really loving us really well. So we just, we just could not be more thankful. And I want to tell you guys one way how God has used you to bless us um, and in the process of changing locations and changing jobs, you have that awkward interim period with no paycheck. So that's not fun. But we were just kind of thinking, oh, that's what we're going to. I guess we'll just the only thing we have to buy is food. So we'll just buy food and stuff like that on the credit card and just kind of, you know, deal with whatever, whatever we you with know, The Lord's faithful. And by the time we're discussing that, me and uh, Anna, I get online and look at the website and I see the announcement with Bear. And he says, hey, we're going to stock their pantry with all this food. And I was like, what? And then Nancy emails Anna and says, hey, we're going to have meals delivered to you guys for the first full week. And I was like, huh? are you kidding me? Like this is, it was just over an abundance, just a blessing to us. And so we just want to say thank you. And, and we also can tell that family harmony is a huge deal here at Tomball Bible Church. And you want to know how I can tell that? Because we have a vast surplus of two things, cake mix and toilet paper. That makes for happy families. I don't know where you're from. So we are grateful for that from you guys. We are so, so thankful. Thank you again. And Ann and I are looking forward to getting to know everybody and just uh, just grafting into the community here. So let's pray and then we'll get started on what we're going to talk about this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the chance to gather together as a body of Christ. And as we look this morning at the humanity of Christ, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word, because we are a people who have a God that has spoken. Let us receive this this morning, what you have for us in Philippians 2. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn to Philippians 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be camped out there in about verses 3 through 11, really 5 through 11. As you're turning there, I want you to think about this. What are the two names that come to your mind when you think about the incarnation of Christ? Two names of people about the incarnation of Christ. I bet I can guess who you're thinking of. It's Apollinaris and Eutyches, right? Especially all you parents with like sons named Apollinaris and Eutyches. All right. Okay. Well, the first service was kind of the same way. So anyways, what they, uh, these two guys are teachers in the early church era, so like 300s, 400s era of the church. And I love history, mainly because I'm not very intelligent. And history, if you read the name and you read the date, you get an A on the test. You can identify it, you get an A. That works for me. I'm like math, where you're like, that's a square root? And that is a Pythagorean theorem. You still get an F, because you got to know how they work. But history doesn't work like that. So it, works, it makes sense in my brain. So these two guys, Apollinaris and Eutyches, There're two teachers. Let me tell you what they were teaching in the in the uh, century of 300 and 400. Verse guy Apollinaris. He says he's teaching Jesus, he so he had a human body but he has a divine soul. So what what God did at Christmas was that a divinity just came and animated a human shell. And he's condemned as a heretic at the Council of Constantinople in 351. And why is that heresy? Because if Jesus doesn't have a human soul, then he's not fully human. If he doesn't have a human mind, then he's not fully human. So then Eutyches comes behind him about a century later, in uh, 481, he comes about and he's teaching to say, so, well, what Jesus has a full human body. But then when the divinity comes upon that, when deity comes upon and collides with humanity, it kind of swallows it up a little bit. So it's, it's more divine. So his flesh is different than ours. He kind of has like superhuman flesh. It's not really like ours. It looks like it, but it's not really like ours. And he's condemned as a heretic at the Council of Chalcedon. Because if Jesus' flesh, if his guts and innards and skin is not like ours, then he's not fully human. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is the humanity of Christ. Next week, we're going to look at the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ. And there's a guy who comes out and teaches against these two heretics because when the church was forming in those early centuries, that's how we get doctrine is some guy goes off the rails and starts teaching craziness and the church has to gather up in these councils like Nicaea and Chalcedon, Constantinople and Ephesus and say, this guy says this and that's not what the Bible teaches so we need to make a statement. So they did that. And Gregory of Nazianzus, he comes out and he says this in answer to both those two guys and kind of that ideology that he's not fully human, he's mostly more God. He says, what he has not assumed, mean Jesus he has not healed what he has not assumed. He has not healed. Therefore, what he has not assumed, he does not redeem. So if he is not doesn't have flesh like ours, then he doesn't redeem flesh like ours. Therefore, we can just cut first Corinthians 15 out of our Bibles that says our human fleshly bodies will be resurrected. We can cut that out because it doesn't apply to us. If he doesn't have a real human body and if he doesn't have a real human soul, human mind, that spirit idea we think of uh, when you think of a person and what makes us a person, if he doesn't have that soul, then we can go to first Peter one nine and cut that out of our Bible because that says that our souls will be saved. And if Jesus doesn't have that, then he doesn't save that because what has not been assumed, he does not heal. That's the answer to these heretics and the humanity of Christ is dogma for us. That puts a slightly different emphasis on the Christmas season, doesn't it? That we die on the hill of the humanity of Christ. That if he is not fully human, then you cannot be rightly called a Christian because he has to be fully human. So that's what we're gonna be diving into this morning. And it's a critical truth and it's the distinctive truth because other religions scoff at this idea. Allah would never condescend to being a lowly human, would never do that. He's, he would never condescend to Greek mythology. The gods kind of become and they like interrelate with people or you'll have a half God, half man. But you never have a God empty himself of his godness, of his deity, and then just become a man. That's, that would be absurd that's what the Jews stumble over even today. Judaism's like, okay, so the Messiah, this coming one who's in the likeness of Moses, like we've read in Deuteronomy 18, that's a person. He's not God. So they, can't, they just can't get it that God would become man. They stumble over that if you read Romans 10. They just are like, that. That's, we can't do that. Other religions scoff at this idea. They mock this idea. They're offended by this idea. But we cling to this. He has to be fully man. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. He's not a hologram. He's not uh, wearing a mask. He doesn't shape shift. He truly becomes man, puts on flesh and empties himself and takes on the form of a bond servant. This one who Isaiah nine says is the father, the almighty father, that one is going to become flesh. The almighty father within an hour of his appearing on earth on the scene is going to have to have his diaper changed. That is God. So 2000 years ago in near Eastern Palestine, an unwed teenage girl is going with her fiance and in the proximity of barnyard animals going to give birth to God. And that happens in time and in space. And we necessarily cling to that. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Philippians 2. So turn with me to that chapter. Look at verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what attitude? You got to go back to verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul, let's give us a little context in this book we're jumping right in the middle of. There's a thread throughout the book of Philippians on unity within the church. And this particular church had problems with that. You can look later and you can see two women called out by name. So he's like, you've got to get along. And how you get along and how you unify is you consider one another as more important than yourselves. Humility necessarily precedes unity. So he's going to look at this humility of Christ that he is the ultimate example of that. Not just because he would go do nice things or he would let other people be first in line or he would hold the door or he would eat last, but because he empties himself of his rightful privileges as God and becomes human at Christmas. So that's going to be Paul's way of explaining this by explaining this text. And this is one of the major, there's four major New Testament Christological texts. We have Philippians 2, last week Bear did John 1, you have Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 we're going to do next week. So let's look at this. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So look at the first part, who, although he existed in the form of God. Prior to Christmas, when you see Jesus, you see glory. Prior to Christmas, when you see Jesus, you're like Moses. You can't stand to look at. You can barely handle a glimpse of his back. And even when you do that, when you go back to the people, your face is glowing so brightly, you have to veil it. That's what you see when you see Jesus before Christmas, because he existed in the form of God. That word form in the Greek is the word morphe, where we get metamorphosis. When an an animal, a butterfly, caterpillar, goes through metamorphosis, it changes what it is, right? It's not just a thing with crawly weird legs and they just stick wings on it. So the form is, it's the very essence of something. It's an objective reality. So Jesus was the very essence of God because he was and is God. So before you see, before he condescends to earth, you saw him, you saw glory. And that's important for us to know as we dive into this discussion on his humanity. Because he never loses that divinity. He has that, but something's going to happen. So let's look at this, verse 6. So although he he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that can kind of give us fits a little bit. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It's kind of, it kind of sounds like Bible-y language. So that word grasped, let's break this down. The word grasped in the Greek is, Greek is the word harpagmos. And it's the idea of, of a robbery or seizing something and carrying it off by force. So then let's put that back in our context here. Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be seized and then carried off that he had to take hold of it and cling on it. He didn't have to do that to prove that he was God. He didn't have to live like that. He didn't need to seek exaltation in order to validate his deity. He is God. There's no discussion. There's no need to clamor at it. He is God. So he's not clinging to it and and just desperately needing to prove it all the time. Now we know people who do that, right? There's always the guy who's got to prove how awesome he is or the girl, how smart she is. And then you have the guys and the girls and the people who don't need to prove how awesome they are, but they just are awesome. So in the interview process, I don't know if it came up, uh, but I uh, am one of the great Texas high school football quarterbacks of our time. Now, I'll tell you, the example is is this, is that I led our high school to -to back-to-back first-round playoff losses. So... (laughs) Needless to say, I was being highly recruited by no one, and uh, but still, there's that mindset, right? So as a kid uh, in, in high school, one of the practices gets rained out, right? And so you have to go in the gym. At least at our little small school, you go in the gym, and that's a recipe for disaster because now you got a bunch of kids after school, hormonal teenagers, and now you brought the guys in where the girls are, like where the cheerleaders are and where the volleyball players are. So we're in there with our form-fitting shirts and we're, you know, trying to look really awesome. And so I'm standing in full court trying to lob footballs into the other goal, right? Just like, hey, I can, I can do this, whatever. What's up, girl? Like, I just kind of like, you know, trying to play this up, like show everybody how awesome I am. I can throw. I'm not the strongest, the fastest, but I can throw the best. So I'm trying to prove it, and I'm just clanging them off the backboard, or just sailing them over, or hitting like somebody's mom over there. And it's just nothing's going in, but everybody's like, "Oh wow!" Like he's hit the backboard more than any of us can. And uh, and I'm, kind of, you know, I gotta prove this all the time. And then here comes strolling along, Donnie Osborne. You guys don't know Donnie. Let me tell you about him. He weighed about 260, and maybe said six words all season, maybe. And most of them were probably like "move." He's huge. Played offensive defensive line. I didn't even know if he knew that we had a football on the field because he just wanted to just smush people into the ground all the time. That's all he wanted to do. So Donnie walks by and uh, the ball kind of bounces over to him and he picks it up with his polar bear paws. And just right-handed guy just goes, flicks it in, goes straight through the hoop. And everybody goes, whoa, Donnie's better than you. And I'm like, shut up. No, he's... No, give me it. You're, you're dumb, Donnie. But he didn't have to prove it all the time. Like, I come to find out Donnie is very tactile. He's very good at skilled things, but he didn't have to walk around trying to prove it all the time. And I'm desperately clinging. No, I'm good at this. I am good at this. No, I'm better than this. I, and I, he didn't have to do it. So Jesus is not me in the gym. He doesn't have to say, I am God. You will respect me as God. You will do these things for me. You will get me golden diapers. You will do the He's not having to hold on to that. It's not a thing to be grasped for him because he is God and God is confident in his godness. So he's not having to cling to that. He's not having to desperately prove that and demand you worship me right now. What does he say in the garden? He says if or when he's on trial, he says, if I were to be the king right now, then my followers would be fighting you right now. But I'm resting in the will of God because I am God. So he is God. He doesn't have to hold on to this. And so if he does not desperately cling and grasp to his divinity and the rightful full faculty use of it, then what does he do? Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. This is, in the theological world, this is called the kenosis, which comes from the Greek word kenosis. And the the word here used is called kenoo, K-N-E, K-E-N-O-O which is to empty, which is, this is, this is the, the definition, to divest oneself of rightful dignity by descending to an inferior position. Jesus divests himself of his rightful dignity and condescends to a far inferior position. That, that's what he does, this emptying. So instead of holding on to the unfettered glory of all that is being the one true God of the universe, he empties himself. He divests himself of the rightful use and full faculty of all of that. That's the emptying of Christ. That's what happens at Christmas. That's what happens in the womb and in the manger. That's this is emptying, so meaning that he never uses his deity for himself or for, to gain glory for himself or to make his life easier. So that is he who created and owns and sustains everything abandoned all of that, forsook all of that to become fully human, become fully human and the manger. Because the reality is, is that if he clings to his divinity, if he clings to his deity, then we all descend into hell with no hope of redemption. We slide into the ever, never ending abyss of despair and torment under the fiery wrath of God if Jesus says, I don't want to give it up. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not going to take the form of a bondservant. I'm not going to empty myself because I'm God and I don't have to. If he does that, then we are all condemned with no hope. There is no other way. But he gives that up. He empties himself of that. So let's stop and think about that reality for a moment because it gets a little bit diluted at Christmas it kind of becomes that magnet you stick on the back of your car that says, keep Christ in Christmas and has a manger with a star and an ark and palm trees. Like, I guess Jesus was born on the beach. But we, we, we dilute, it gets a little bit diluted, like, yeah, that's kind of the cute thing. And, and everybody's kind of cool with it in the U.S. that Christmas has a little bit of Jesus stuff in it. So if you get bored of Santa Claus, you can go the Jesus route if you want. But it's not to be diluted. This is, this is absolutely critical for us, So if God himself becomes a man, a man has to first be a boy, a boy has to first be a baby, and a baby has to first be a pre-born baby. Now that's, that's entirely simplistic, and you understand the anatomy growth period of a human. But think about that, that the second member of the Trinity, for this purpose to, to think of his deity, we'll just say the son, the son so yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for nine and a half months. Where is the Son? Where is the God who created, according to Colossians one? He's in a womb for nine and a half months. He's in one spot. The fully omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of the universe is in a womb in time and in space. Very really, right there. That's that's unfathomable. For us, that's where he is, and he he wasn't kind of coming in and out of the womb like oh I'll kind of check in like make sure the baby's doing pretty good okay that's good I'm gonna go over here and handle some other world issues or keep other things like atoms from splitting apart I'm gonna do all that stuff I'm gonna he stays in the womb and he's like oh the birthing process I'll just kind of wait to show up like as soon as that baby starts breathing air then I'm there I'm in there I'm whole way there he doesn't do that he doesn't like expand the womb to make it a roomy deluxe suite. It's a normal womb because you and I didn't get an expanded womb. You and I didn't get to check in and out of being in the womb. You and I didn't get to get around the birth canal or some other way to come out. Like whatever it is, we didn't get to like skip around any of that. So therefore, Jesus, if he's going to redeem us and all that we are as humans, doesn't either. So the the limitless God of the universe is limited to just utter helplessness as a human. Isn't that just, that's absurd. That's, and that, that's humiliating. Like, that the God of the universe would do that? How degrading. For the omnipotent God of the universe who speaks and everything has to obey. Even things that aren't in existence have to obey and come into existence when he speaks. And this one who is called the word of God, as Bear talked about last week, The word of God is going to limit himself to everything that we've ever been limited to in our entire lives. That happens at Christmas and it has to. So verse seven, the train of thought continues on. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a bond servant. So the one who from eternity past existed in the Morphe Theo, the form of God, now then takes on and limits himself to the doulo, the form of a slave, a slave. A lot of our Bibles say bond servant because slave is just kind of a ah, touchy word, but that's a slave. He limits himself to that. So Christ, at that moment in time, I'm trying to convey this idea on the linear layout of history, there is a point in time where the second member of the Trinity of God himself takes on human flesh and has that human flesh from eternity forward. He is still in that human form. And how do we know that? Because we have John 20 in our Bibles and Mary Magdalene's in the garden. She's weeping and praying. And when Jesus is kind of coming up on her, he thinks she's the, he, she thinks he's the gardener. So that, that means He's probably a man. If it looked like something not man, she would have hit her face and been going crazy. Like when people see angels. We also know that Thomas sticks his finger in the wounds, right? So there's a human body there because he said, stick your hand. Oh, Oh, by the way, my hands are like, it's weird now because I'm not a human anymore. They're over here. No, he's just in my hands. And Thomas is like, there it is. We see that. And then we have Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. So these men are walking to Emmaus and Jesus comes alongside them. And they don't understand that it is Jesus because they saw that guy die. But then they're just like, wow, this man knows a whole lot about messianic literature in the Old Testament. They're not. The debate is not whether this guy they're talking to is a man. The debate is I don't understand why the Messiah had to die. And Jesus explains that. And they were like, whoa, so he is in this form for eternity. That's this the humility of Christ, that Jesus is fully human at Christmas. Jesus is not Clark Kent at Christmas. Clark Kent is not really a human. When Clark Kent, he's just Superman without the elastic underwear and the cape. He puts on a button-up shirt and goes to work at a job but if you walk into the Daily Planet at the newspaper, you zig around Lois Lane to avoid calamity, you go right to Superman or to Clark Kent and you shoot him, what's that bullet going to do? It's going to bounce off, right? Because he's Superman. He's just masquerading as a human, as one of us. I'm going to put glasses on like I need vision correction, but really my eyes can burn through walls. That's not Jesus. Like Jesus is not just faking this. Clark Kent was faking being a human. He didn't empty himself of the Krypton powers or whatever it is. I don't read comic books a lot, but Jesus empties himself of that. So if you walk up to Jesus and you punch him, he's going to bruise. And eventually at around noon, he's going to get hungry. And then when evening comes, he's going to get sleepy. And after he runs for a long time, he's going to get winded. And if you hit him in the back with whips, he's going to bleed everywhere and his flesh is going to hang off his body. Because he was really human. He was masquerading as that. And that begins at the manger. That begins before the manger in the womb. That he's fully human. And he has to be. And it, it's, it's not as if you can just kind of say, well, just dial down your divinity. Because you can't just kind of turn it. That's would be like, hey, hey, J.J. Watt, you play junior high football. We'll give you the jersey that matches ours and you just run at about 25%. That's not going to work, because as soon as that 13-year-old lineman comes to block him and then bounces off like a racquetball, you're going to figure out, like, hey, number 99, we should check his birth certificate. Wait a minute. That guy's huge. Because he can't turn it off. He can't empty himself of that. Jesus empties himself, divests himself of what is rightfully his. And then he continues on in this in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man. He looks like a man. People think that he's a man. His own brothers, when he they've lived with him for 30 years, and then at age 30, he starts preaching now and saying crazy things like, I and the Father are one. I don't speak anything. What the Father speaks, they don't go, it all makes sense now. You used to hold up the couch with one hand as a toddler, and Mom would vacuum under it. And or you would save kids from calamitous bus crashes in rivers. And they were just like, you're nuts and you think you're better than us. Because you're the firstborn. They, they're, they're not like, oh, it makes sense. I get it. You're, you're not a man. They're like, no, you're a man and you think you're better than us. So he looks like a man. He has the appearance of a man. And that word appearance is the word schema. We get a word scheme or schematics. And schematics are like layout, structure, form. So he, not, he doesn't just, he not just is a man in the innards. He looks like a man. He looks like a person. You're not confused at what you're looking at. You're not, you're not, you know, fall down in fear when you just see Jesus walking along the road. When you have revelations, like Peter in the boat, he hits the deck and says, get away from me. I'm a sinner. But before that, Peter was like, hey, who are you? Okay, you're some carpenter guy. All right. but When people see angels, they hit the deck because you don't look like me. You're different. Jesus looks like a man because he is a man. He is a human. And look at verse eight as it continues on. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's two major facets of humanity in that verse, becoming obedient and death. All of us as humans are obedient to something. Even if we are the president, CEO, czar, king, pope, ruler of the entire world, and nobody can say anything to us, God can just still give you cancer, and then you're like, well, there you go. You you had to obey that. So we are all subservient to something in some way, if at the very least it is God himself who makes the rainfall on the saved and the unsaved just the same. So Jesus is obedient, obedient to the Father, and then he's obedient to an extent that he dies like a human. He doesn't have some kind of supernatural death where it doesn't hurt as bad, it's real death, and he didn't choose when that death happened, because that act is rebellion. I don't know if you have heard about all the the uh, assisted suicide bills that have been passed in places like Vermont and California and Oregon. Those, those all got passed, and, and while that's incredibly unchristian, let me show you what their the uh, the 503C organization called Death with Dignity. This is their saying. This is their uh, tagline. The greatest human freedom is to live and die according to our own desires and beliefs. The greatest human freedom is to live and die according to our own desires and beliefs. This is a new mindset. I get to control how I die. I am sovereign over everything in my entire life, even when I die. It is an utter rebellious act against the God of the universe who decides when we are born and when we die. And Jesus doesn't take that. Jesus doesn't agree with the greatest human freedom is to live as I please. He says what Paul says in Romans six twenty two: the greatest human freedom is to be a slave to God and to obey the word of the father. And he does that to the point of death, even death on a cross. He doesn't take that liberty as God. I'm going to die however I want. He's in the garden saying, if you would have any other way, please let it happen. But if not, your will be done. Full and utter and complete humanity. He empties himself of all. Perfect human to the end. Now, verse 9, 10, and 11 of this passage. So those first few verses, that's the humiliation of Christ. And these are the exaltations of Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man. Look at verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. At the name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is the appropriate response to the savior, to the God who took on flesh, is that every knee will bow. Every intelligent being in every single realm will at some point bow the knee to Jesus. Now, we are in the business of of pleading with people to do that willingly now, instead of under compulsion, divine compulsion in the day of the Lord. But Jesus is worthy of that, of the bowed knee. Now, turn with me to Matthew 2. Let's see something here to tie this in with the Christmas story, with the the divinity and the humanity of Christ, of God becoming human on that day. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, this is the the story we know of the Magi, right? They come in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, this is verse 1. In the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi arrived from the east In Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And they go to Herod because he should know, right? He's the king in the land. But Herod's a pagan. He's never read Micah 5. He's not from the line of Jacob. He's from the line of Esau. He's an Edomite. So he doesn't know. He's got to ask, where is that guy going to be born? I don't even know anything about this coming king, this king who's going to be king of all kings. I don't don't understand that. So the Magi are like, oh, you don't know. And then they're going to go figure it out. And they go to Bethlehem. And this is them in verse 11. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. So these Magi come with the appropriate response To the God who took on flesh, they bow the knee and they worship him, though he's a toddler. Because that toddler is really a toddler. But he is also Almighty Father, the the Lamb of God. That's who he is. They bow the knee at that moment. So we see a correct response there to the fully human Messiah. Messiah. Now in Philippians 11, it goes on. In Philippians 2, 11 it goes on and says, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Turn with me to Luke 2. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to see this appropriate response as well to the incarnate Savior. This is the shepherds. That though Jesus humbled himself as lowly as possible, that he's indeed Lord of all. So in Luke 2, verse 15, And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened. This thing that has happened. Point in time, past tense, he was born. Real historical event, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, They made known the statement of which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. So the shepherds hear the proclamation of Jesus, the rightful response to the incarnate Savior, the second member of Trinity, the Son of God, that he is the Holy One of Israel who will take away the sins of the world. They hear that and they say, we agree. And they go and find him. And then what's their response? Verse Twenty And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So these shepherds confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, that this infant who needs to be fed every two hours is Lord. That's the appropriate response. And we see that in the Christmas literature of our Bibles, of our Gospels. That that's how we respond to this Savior. So I want to ask you, in closing, for those of you who are unbelievers in here, for those of you who don't know Christ and you've heard these kind of things, it sounds like a novel idea, you kind of maybe just came because it's Christmas time and this is a place to come, we're so glad you're here. But you need to know that the failure to bow the knee and to confess as Lord is one of eternal consequences. That, that rebellion, that stiff leg and that closed mouth earns you hell. But that same Savior who came in flesh, fully human, fully God, is also mighty to save, to justify, to reconcile, and redeem the lost. And for those of us in here who are believers, it is the manger, is the scene of Mary holding the infant, is that trite to you? Is that trivia? To you like oh I know I know that and I know the Magi came when he was a little bit older so that's useful which it is but it, but is it is it that to, to us has it become that that we just kind of do our thing and Jesus comes as a baby and baby Jesus and or is it everything to us do do we fall on our faces do we still bow the knee and say why would you come? Why would you condescend to my lowly estate and take on all that I am? Because I know all that I am, and it's not awesome. My joints hurt, and I get sick, and I mess up, and things are oppressive. And you did that. As the creator of the universe, do we worship at that? Do we, so I want you to ask this question as the men come forward to hand out the elements for communion. I want you to, I want you to answer this question. What will it take this Christmas for you to earnestly worship this God who emptied himself and took on flesh like us? What will it take for you to admit, I'm a little bit over the, uh, the incarnation. It's kind of, you know, a story. And then fully worship. So we're going to take communion and ask for you, those who are believers, to ponder on those things.